Now, let me ask you another question. Were any of you uh, tempted already today? Because we're going to be talking about temptation. So, uh, I don't know if you heard about the uh, fellow who was awakened uh, by his mother and said, son, son, it's time to get up and go to church. And... Uh, he said, oh, Mom, give me one good reason. And so he, his mom says, well, son, I'll give you two good reasons. First of all, you're 39 years old. <laughs> and second, you're the pastor. <laughs> all right, some of you are laughing. All right, I can tell. All right, today we're talking about temptation. And <clears throat> temptation for a period, a very particular period of 40 days and 40 nights. And you'll know that this happened right after the wonderful, sub sublime moment in which the Lord Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism. There is the dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove that descends and the voice from heaven of the Heavenly Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All right, so that sounds great. So it sounds like it's now time to go home and have a pizza party or something, right? But instead, the Lord Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And uh, we'll talk about that and lessons we have about the Lord Jesus, but also lessons that apply to us. About 500 years ago, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther. And you know that he is often called the father of the Reformation, and certainly of the German Reformation. And that one of the things that he wanted to do was to put the Bible into the hands of the people in their own language. So it being German, he translated it into German. German. And uh, when uh, he did this, he had to go into hiding. And he hid out at Wartburg Castle. And over a period of about uh, 10 weeks in uh, 1521, he was there in this particular room. And that's a place where you can actually go and visit. And there he did the marvelous translation into the common language of the people because he wanted to put the Bible in the hands of the people in the language that they knew. And we likewise have the privilege of having the Bible in our own language. As you know, in Europe, the having your own Bible was not common. And Latin was often the language in which they heard it. And so there was a great dearth of understanding of Scripture. And so it is particularly significant that the first temptation, we are told something about the significance of the Word of God. But one night, Martin Luther uh, had a particular encounter. In this room, he was continually plagued by visitations, appearances of the devil. And on a particular night, 
he grabbed up the closest thing that was at hand, which was his ink pot, and he threw it at the devil. And he hit the wall, and maybe you can see where the plaster is kind of eaten up now. There was actually a big uh, ink blot there, and various visitors over time kind of picked it off to take home souvenirs. But let's understand that here is Luther doing a great thing, a good thing for God, and yet he is being plagued by the enemy. He's being tempted over and over again. And so we are in a very, very honored tradition of following after God and discovering that if we are going to follow after God, we will be tempted. Now let's understand that the word sometimes translate tempt can also be translated test. And so God tests us so that we can prove ourselves or improve ourselves, whereas the enemy tests us, tempts us, so that we fail or we fall. And so we begin looking at Matthew chapter 4, and we will learn some significant lessons here from the experience of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And let's understand that this was the immediate follow-up to his baptism. Because this is part of the preparation for his public ministry. And so he came to John and he said, Let me be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness because I want to put my seal on your baptism onto repentance. And then led by the Spirit, and you'll see, of course, again, the evidence of the Trinitarian teaching of Scripture so clearly, he went into the desert. And understand that desert in Judea is indeed hot and dry. In some ways, it's kind of a reprise of what happened in the garden. Adam in paradise with his wife being tempted. The second Adam in the desert. Different. Alone. One temptation for the first couple, for the endless days of being tested by the Savior. We often read this passage and we think it all happened at the end. Is that how temptation comes to you? No, it happens continually, doesn't it? And so when the Lord Jesus recounted it, we can suppose to his disciples, because he would have been the only source, he was the only witness, when he recounted it to his disciples, he told them what had transpired. And it crystallized around three particular temptations. As Pastor Rob led us in prayer, he reminded us from Hebrews chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Forty days and forty nights. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought... How would I do about not being tempted? Let's just take the first one, which is really a temptation to worry. Could I stay untempted to worry for 40 days and 40 nights? Can I even get through one day without worrying? This morning as I was driving in, 
And this is usually a good time for me to pray. And uh, I am realizing that there is something that is nagging me. And I thought, oh, here I am worrying about this thing. It's months away, but here I am worrying about it. And so often we discover that uh, we do not do very well. So the fate of all of humanity depends on what the Lord Jesus does in these 40 days. That is, your fate and my fate depends on whether or not the Lord Jesus passes the test. Who'd like to take his place? No volunteers. We know how much we need him. We are often tempted in our devotional times. You know when we're supposed to be most spiritual? You notice that? And you'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord Jesus needed particular support from his friends when he's praying that Peter, James, and John, what do they keep doing? Falling asleep. How are you doing in your devotional prayers? You have a good nap? All right. And what about in those moments of spiritual triumph? This is actually a uh, moment of great spiritual triumph because he said, the heavens open, the Father declare, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the Spirit of God descending in a visible form, and yet he is being tempted. The transfiguration, a moment of critical revelation to the disciples. And you know that right following after that, when the Lord Jesus begins to explain to the disciples that he must be uh, betrayed, turn over to the leaders, and then suffer and die, what does Peter say? Not on your life. And so the Lord Jesus says, you know the words, get behind me, Satan. In our moments of great spiritual triumph, we discover that the enemy has somehow managed to make his way in. You notice that? Because we can't lock him out. He knows how to speak to our inner being. He is a spiritual being. By the way, let's understand that the devil is not omnipresent, but he happens to have a lot of friends. And I don't know whether you got a big demon or a demon who favors you or not, but all of us experience it. We are told that we are uh, in distress because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes the temptations come to us from others. Sometimes it's just what's within us. And sometimes the devil or his minions are involved in testing us. Yes, do I believe in a personal devil? Yes. Do I know better than Jesus? No. And so those who say there is no personal devil don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. One of the dilemmas of our secular age is that we know that there is evil, but we do not have in our view of the world, in a secular worldview, a place for evil. It doesn't work because there is no right and wrong and so on. And we are often tested in important moments in our lives. So if you are in a particular moment in which you need to make some important decisions, you will be tempted. 
That's just the reality. And of course, the Lord Jesus, in the supreme moment of importance, on the cross, he cries out in the word that we have from the psalmist, Psalm 23, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was so traumatized by his experience. Thank God, you read the rest of the psalm, and I can only imagine that the Lord Jesus, who knew the psalms by heart, made it all the way to the end in which he was able to praise his God. Forty days and forty nights, this is actually part of a pattern that we see with Moses and with Elijah. Forty days and forty nights of Moses on the mount with God in which the Ten Commandments were given. And so we now come to the first of the three temptations. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now just so you understand the construction doesn't mean I'm doubting that you're the Son of God, but really, if you are, and I know that you are, or if you like, since you are, why don't you... Turn these stones into bread. And you have a little picture on the screen of the Judean desert. And what you see are a bunch of loaf-sized stones. He was hungry. What would you be doing? What would you say be thinking about? Boy, it sure looks like a nice, tasty, fresh loaf of bread. And a temptation would always be to simply give in. Because, you see, we are tempted in our gifts, our strengths, and in our weaknesses. So, the strength that the Lord Jesus had is that he indeed had the power to turn the stones into bread. The weakness that he is experiencing at this moment is that he is hungry. Does this resonate with some of the realities that you have in your life? And you'll see that the Lord Jesus answers him, with the strongest weapon that we have, which is the Word of God. It is written, praise God, that we have a God who commits himself in the Word so that we have the promises of God that we can take hold of and the commands of God so that we can live rightly in obedience to him. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 8, in which uh, Moses is explaining what God has been doing for the past 40 years in leading the children of Israel. And he says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, that which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is God that makes every provision that we have. Everything that we have, we have received from the hand of God. If we don't get that, then we need to go back to square one. Everything that we have. And so if we are going to resist the enemy... We need to be strong because we feed on his word. There is very little value in meeting a temptation and saying, well, I have the word of God and I'll just look it up at the time. That's not soon enough. And that's why we read it, we meditate on it, 
we hide the word of God in our hearts so that we have his word to give us strength in our moment of need. It's a little late if we are waiting until the temptation comes. And so some of us struggle, particularly because we have been slow on taking advantage of reading the word of God. Maybe turn off the television for an hour and try reading, see what happens. Okay? And let's see, if we say that we are following Jesus, we will be like Jesus. We will read the scriptures like Jesus read them in order to know the will of his Father and to do it. Not like the Pharisees. We don't want to be Bible experts so that we can stump people and condemn people and criticize people, but so that we can please our Heavenly Father. And so it is knowing the book, but also knowing the author of the book. Let's recognize that he was led by the Spirit and that he knew the Scripture. We need to be alive in our relationship with God. So this comes back to where you are in your own relationship with the Lord. Knowing the book will make you like a Pharisee. Knowing God will make you like Jesus, you see. And knowing the author of the book will also mean that you're interested in the book. And so one of the questions that I suspect was involved in this was, will Jesus pull rank to make things easier for himself? He's got the authority of being the Son of God. And he could say, I'm special. I deserve special privileges. Does that sound like something that maybe you've said from time to time? I know that I have. Will he identify with the people in their need? Because you see, he has said, blessed are the poor. Remarkable. Can Jesus possibly teach Matthew 6 about understanding how we are not to worry about our lives, what we will eat or what we will wear, but rather to trust God. How can he teach this if he will not trust God in this moment in which he is experiencing hunger? For me, it's a great comfort to know that he did not make it easier for himself in facing temptation. Do you agree? Amen. And you see, he waited for God to answer in his time. God will answer. God has promised. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you. That is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The culmination of the Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 6 in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the question comes to us, will I trust God to provide for my needs in his time? Okay, that's really the critical question. This is the temptation. To somehow pull rank, find advantage, not to trust God in those moments. The second is the his enemy takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, here, here is a uh, painting from the Middle Ages. I don't think it looked like that, but you get the idea. And so he's being told, well, why don't you throw yourselves down? And Satan, what does he do? He quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you 
and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Is this a true scripture? Yes. But let's understand that it needs to be understood properly. And so the Lord Jesus gives context. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't presume on God. And so this is really an important thought for us because I suspect that if you're like me, you presume on God a lot. You see, in this case, is jump, God will catch you. But sometimes our presumption is, go ahead and do it. God won't catch me. And that's presumption. Or it doesn't matter. God will forgive me anyway. And friends, I am there a lot. That's where I don't have a chance of being your Savior. I would not have made it even through one day, let alone one moment of one day. And so here is a test of humility about whether or not he's going to trust God in this too. And this particular temptation for Jesus is different than maybe your temptation and mine in some ways. Because you see, the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. And why shouldn't he be famous? Why shouldn't he be a celebrity? Why shouldn't he do something that will wow the crowds? But he doesn't. Because he knows that there's something more important than being popular or famous, a celebrity. There's something more than having pride and boasting and bragging and being pretentious. He doesn't need to bolster his ego because he's secure in his confidence in his Father. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 3 with me for a moment because, you see, there's a very, very strong lesson it's from the history of the children of Israel back in the days of Moses. It is also in Psalm 95, in which, uh, the, which uh, the writer of the Hebrews quotes. And so there is, says, so as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the, in, uh, the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. And you know that what was characteristic of the children of Israel was how they murmured and complained, thinking that somehow God wasn't doing what he should be doing. Are you ever there? Yeah. I suspect you might be there today. I have my moments of wanting my own pity party right now. Right? And you might say right now, man, I wish Phil would stop talking because he's talking about stuff that bothers me. Well, I hope it's true if it's bothering you. And it's not bothering you because you don't like my voice. You see, and we are in effect being presumptuous and we're saying, if I were God, I would do things differently. I wouldn't let this sickness come in my family. My car wouldn't have broken down. We got all kinds of things in which we think friends know better than God. True? True. 
Friends, there are many ways to test God. Many, many ways in which we test him. For example, Samson. God gave him extraordinary strength. And yet, what did he do with his strength? He presumed that he was good with God when he wasn't. And you can go on down the list of the great figures in Scripture. David presumed against God. And he thought, because God has given me victory after victory after victory, and I've expanded the kingdom in a way that it's never been before, that instead of going out to war in the springtime, as kings were to go out to war home, and there he was tempted when he saw Bathsheba. What was he thinking then? He was thinking, God won't catch me. God won't do anything. You see, he was being presumptuous. Does this, any of this stuff hit home? Yeah. It's really easy. And this, by the way, friends, is why we need a Savior. <sighs> Whatever we are all inclined to want celebrity, fame, whatever word you want to put on it. But the Lord has a great lot of teaching. Here's one passage from Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, in which he condemns the Pharisees. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be the greatest in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi, which means great one. But you are not to be called rabbi, and on and on he goes in the same vein. Let's understand that we have within us this desire to be affirmed, and that is good. But that affirmation should not be at the price of presuming on God. When we are strong and secure in our relationship with God, and when we know that we have nothing to prove with God because He loves us so deeply, we're good. And that's where my self-esteem is grounded. I don't need to worry about what other people are going to think about me. Nice little quote for C.S. Lewis on the screen. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Just focusing on the joy of serving Jesus, serving others together. What a privilege we have. So we come to the third temptation. Are you still with me? All right. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now you notice that this time he didn't premise it on, well, you, since you're the son of God, because he's abandoned that tactic because it isn't working. And so this is a raw, direct temptation. Come to me. Follow me, and I will give you what you want. You see, it is indeed the destiny of the Son of God to be the ruler of all the kingdoms. 
And, and Satan, as the prince of the power of the air, has indeed authority, as it were, over the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus will have none of it. He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, one of the great classic stories that illustrates this is, of course, Daniel chapter 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the three Hebrew children, as we sometimes call them. And you know the story of the great golden statue, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, set up on the plain. And when this great cacophony of instruments was played, everybody was supposed to fall to the ground. Now, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were servants of the one true God. And they could not, they would not bow down. And of course, their enemies amongst the uh, bureaucrats, the elite in the court of the king, said, Nebuchadnezzar, did you know that these men do not fall down when they should? They're not like the others. Now, Nebuchadnezzar heard about this, and he was furious, and he called them in, he says, why aren't you doing this? I'll give you one more chance. One more chance, and if you don't bow down, I ain't going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And here are the beautiful, powerful words that I think have inspired many of us in uh, the story of uh, Daniel chapter 3, uh, in which they say, we will. We will not bow down. We do not need to defend ourselves before you, but we will not bow down, because our God is able to deliver us. And even if He doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down. So what happened? Nebuchadnezzar, being true to form, he throws them into the fiery furnace. And it was so hot that the soldiers that were assigned to do this task, they fell in and they were consumed. And then there was this extraordinary vision. As they looked into the fire, what did they see? That there were not three figures, but four. And there was a recognition that this one had the appearance of the Son of God. Because God is true and He's faithful and He delivered them. But let's understand that even if they were not delivered, they would not bow down. And so then we read how Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent His angel and rescued His servants. They trusted in Him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Then the king promoted them. Friends, whether or not God delivers us, 
Will we stand firm? Let me tell you that I am tempted and have been over the years many times to achieve success by compromise. That's the truth. That's why I could never be your savior. And I suspect that that's the truth for us all, in which we have just found ourselves beyond our own strength. And friends, that is why we need a Savior, one who is strong enough. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, the Savior faced off against his greatest enemy for our sake. And because he didn't fail, because he passed the test, he is indeed able to be our trailblazer. He proved that it can be done. That what Adam and Eve failed to do, and what all the descendants of Adam and Eve did since, is not the final word. And so God sent his second Adam in order to prove Yes, it can be done. And to create a living way for us. Thank you that Jesus is my substitute because I fail so often. He is my righteous substitute. So when God looks at me, he does not see me in my sin. He sees my Savior who mediates between me and God. He is indeed my high priest, presenting himself as the perfect sacrifice. And of course, because he has gone through this testing, he understands what you and I are going through. Maybe more intensely than any of us. I would say yes. Because you see, it is only those who stand the strongest who understand how great the temptation is. When we're used to giving in, it doesn't feel like all that much. And thank God for Jesus as my example. I am learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. And Lord, i got a long way to go. I've been on this journey since 1964, and I still have a long way to go. And some of you will say, Amen, Pastor, we know that. <laughs> but it's true. We all have a long way to go. And that's, friends, why we need to be patient with one another and not judge each other critically. We're all on this journey, we're on it together, and thank God for the Spirit of God that does help us. So I do live more like Jesus in some measure, but I'm not there yet. So some lessons for me. Expect testing to come. Not just some other time, but right now. Expect the testing to come. It was said that uh, John Bunyan would uh, uh, acknowledge the presence of Satan sitting in the first pew. Why? Because every time that he thought he was doing a great job, he was being tested, you see, tempted. Let's also recognize that, yes, the devil may bring it. So in the case of Job, we see how uh, the Satan was involved. But God sent it. Always, always, always it passes through the hands of God who has promised, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good to those who love God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You need that. If you want to get through the stuff that's going to happen to you this week, you need that. I need that. And draw on the book 
Read it. Know it so that you have the resources already. Become strong in His Word. But also do it recognizing the author of the book. Jesus went in, led by the Spirit. But He also knew the Scriptures well. And praise God, Jesus did not fail. And so here I am. We sang... Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Why can we be washed in His blood and be spotless before God who sees us? Because He did not fail. And it's good to admit our weakness and to draw on His strength. 1 Corinthians 10.9 is often referred to. And this is where Paul reminds us that every temptation that we have is common to us all. So don't say, oh yeah, but no one's ever experienced this before. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun, even in the realm of temptations. But with every temptation that God makes a provision so that you can stand. And I can attest to this. That when I acknowledge that I am being tempted, I say, Lord, help, invariably, He provides a way forward, a way through. And then thank God as well, then when I mess up, I admit my failure and receive the gift of forgiveness. Think of it. There are millions of people who go around with a tremendous burden because they don't understand the gift of forgiveness. I am able to be forgiven right here, right now. To be free from the burden of guilt. Not to go off sinning again, but rather to live keeping my eye on the Savior. And how great was the price. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for meeting these temptations. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for meeting these temptations in your own right. But also thank you for what it teaches us about how we are to meet temptation. And Lord, we admit that right now that we need that precious gift that you have bought for us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that precious gift. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who strengthens us in those particular moments of temptation. And we recall, O Lord, in the passage how having been tested in this supreme test that the angels of God came to minister to him. And Lord, we have in our own journeys experienced your particular ministering care in this moment. Thanks, O Lord, for those that uh, have been angels, as it were. Thank you, O Lord, for your love for us. Be pleased, O Lord, to continue to speak to us by your Spirit. Amen.